Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor, sorry, I'm a professor of pharmacy practice at the supporting sponsor of Onco Farm, the Bill Gadd College of Pharmacy. It's the last week of July 2021. Uh, back from week back home visiting my parents in Indiana and some family and friends and uh, got got some updates to talk about and just to keep things kind of uh, grouped we're gonna do some breast cancer updates and then some some graft versus host disease updates so let's start with the breast cancer updates um, the uh, the FDA granted regular approval to pembrolizumab for triple negative breast cancer uh, this week uh, recently now this was an update approval uh, Pembro had previously received an accelerated approval uh, based on Keynote 522, which was published uh, in 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine. So this, these were triple negative breast cancer patients who received uh, neoadjuvant chemo. They got carboplatin, paclitaxel, then doxorubicin um, and cyclophosphamide with either pembrolizumab or placebo, then had surgery, and then either adjuvant, pembro, or placebo. We talked about this on the podcast. Of course, now the folks who did not have a complete um, uh, pathologic, complete response would have received uh, adjuvant capecitabine. They didn't get that. Maybe now those who are BRCA mutated would have had adjuvant elaprib. Uh, but anyway, uh, because of the regular approval, we do have some updated um, uh, numbers here. So what I'm going to do is kind of illustrate how the numbers... Uh, and uh, our efficacy endpoints and, and numbers change with longer follow-up. So what we knew from the publication last year in NEJM is the pathologic complete response rate was 65% versus 51%. Okay, that's about a delta of 13, 14% difference in, in pathologic complete response rate. Meaning when they go in and they remove uh, the breast tumor, all the disease is gone. Now those numbers tighten um, when we see the data that's presented in the PI with the update approval. Instead of 65% or 64.8, it goes down to 63% in the Pembro arm, and the number goes up from 51.2 to 55.6 in uh, the control arm. That's a that's a delta of 7.4%. So the PCR rate is not as big, it seems, as what we saw last uh, last year. The event-free survival rate, now so, uh, or actually the event-free survival numbers, not the, the people who survived without an event, but those who had an event. So this would be a recurrence or death from disease was 7.4% with Pembro versus 11.8% with placebo. Lower is better, fewer recurrences, fewer deaths. That's a delta of 4.6%. In the PI, that difference changes. So now the number of events or the percentage of people who had you know a bad event uh, on Pembro is 16% uh, versus 24%. Uh, with placebo, that's 8%. And again, a uh, little bit of a flawed study because they these pe- these patients were basically denied adjuvant capecitabine, which we know has uh, benefit in this triple negative breast cancer population. So uh, an updated approval, regular approval of something that's already been uh, really an established part of practice since that publication, a uh, little bit more confidence now, but again, that with longer follow-up, those numbers change um, just because uh, we're more confident with with more people on study for longer periods of time, we're more confident of what the benefit uh, is, uh, but but also less confident because we don't know um, about uh, you know the adjuvant capecitabine that, that was denied these patients. All right, another breast cancer update. Just this week uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, we had a publication from the Austrian Breast and Colorectal Study Group. I didn't know they existed, but this is their trial 16, and this is the duration of adjuvant uh, aromatase inhibitor treatment in postmenopausal breast cancer. They took over 3,000 patients um, 
in a phase three study, and they, they looked at essentially longer duration of anastrozole versus not as long duration of anastrozole. So these were uh, postmenopausal women with breast cancer. These are pretty, I think they call them moderate risk. They're, they're low to moderate risk, I would say. 73% had T1 tumors, so less than uh, two centimeters. Uh, N0, 67%. So most of these were node negative. Two-thirds were node negative. Uh, median age was 64 years. Um, half had received tamoxifen. They're postmenopausal. That number seems low. I would think more of them would have received uh, an AI, at least here in the States. So that may be a geographic difference in practice. Uh, 42% received a combination of tamoxifen and an AI. And only 7% received AI alone for five years. So they all completed five years of hormonal treatment. Um, only 30% received chemo of some kind. So most of these folks, and that kind of fits if they're hormone positive, no negative, that they wouldn't do, they wouldn't need chemo. So all these women had five years of adjuvant um, hormonal therapy, uh, about 50-50 between tamoxifen uh, and, and some sort of AI. Uh, and they were randomized to either two additional years of anastrozole or five more years of anastrozole. So we're really looking at seven versus 10 years of hormonal treatment. Um, and there was no difference in, in median event-free survival. Um, and these folks were followed for a median of 15 years from their breast cancer diagnosis. And I've seen breast cancer recur up to, I think, 19 years later is, is the longest I've seen. So 15 years of median follow-up is pretty good. Um, so no benefit of longer uh, duration of AI here. Um, this is a little bit in contrast to what we saw at Adam and Atlas, where you're looking at 10 years of tamoxifen versus five years of tamoxifen and improvement and event-free survival. Uh, now, there are uh, higher fracture rates the longer you're on the AI, and that was seen in this study. And there were no differences in subgroups. It wasn't like the people who got tamoxifen got more benefit from longer AI than those who had already been on uh, you know, a combination of tamoxifen or an AI. All right, so you know this, this is reassuring, and, and I think what we see here, even in the tamoxifen data from Adam and Atlas, is that the you, you get diminishing returns the longer you're on uh, hormonal treatment. And what a lot of the benefit is, is preventing um, second primary breast cancers. It's, it's prevention of another breast cancer, not necessarily increasing maybe the cure rate of the breast cancer. It's already been resected and already been maybe had radiation if you had breast co conservation therapy um, and maybe chemotherapy. All right. So those are the breast cancer updates. Let's talk about graft versus host disease updates, uh, a disease that I don't see quite honestly, uh, at least very often, just because we are not a, a transplant center. So uh, we had a new drug approved uh, a couple weeks ago. This is uh, Bellum Osudil. The brand name is Resurock. Like, Res, you rock. Uh, Resurock. It sounds like a like a serious XM radio station. You're listening to Resurock. Graph versus host disease radio. Okay, so here are my five... Uh, arbitrarily five of my favorite songs that have rock in the title. So R-O-C-K in the USA by John Mellencamp, Indiana, born and bred. Uh, rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution by ACDC. Uh, rock and Roll by Led Zeppelin, of course. Uh, rock the Casbah by The Clash. And then Rock in the Free World by Neil Young. Maybe my personal favorite on that list. So this was approved July 16th of 2021 for children and adults, uh, children 12 and older, uh, after failure of two lines of prior treatment, at least two lines of prior treatment for chronic graft versus host disease, which is graft versus host disease, I think after 100 days, 
after the transplant. The dose is 200 milligrams a day with a meal. Taking it with food increases the bioavailability uh, and the, the exposure uh, by twofold. It is a rock inhibitor, hence the resu rock in, in the name. Uh, more rock 2 inhibition uh, than rock 1. Uh, and this is a kinase rock is, and essentially what this what rock 2 inhibition appears to do based on the preclinical model is it shifts the uh, the concentration or the numbers of T helper 17 cells decreases as an increasing increases the number of T reg cells with help uh, with immune tolerance you get the immune system not to attack you know the gut the skin the liver the eyes whatever it may be. Um, and, and it does so by, by decreasing phosphorylation via the STAT3 pathway is, is what we're thinking. And you can find, um, you know, if you just search uh, Bellimosudil uh, on PubMed, you'll find that the two studies have been published, the dose-finding study from JCO and then the clinical study uh, that this approval is based on in, in blood of this year. Um, it's a CYP3A4 substrate, uh, but it is okay. There, there is not increased exposure when it's given with itraconazole, so it appears to be safe with azelanofungals, which is good news, uh, no dose reduction. Uh, you do need to increase the dose to 200 twice a day from the usual dose of 200 daily if you're taking a 3A4 inducer like, say, rifampin. Uh, and then also 200 twice a day if the drug is taken with a PPI because it does decrease exposure uh, and absorption if you're taking a PPI. And the approval is based on a single arm study of 65 patients that's looking at response rate. I'm not going to get into the response uh, criteria for, for chronic graft versus host disease because it's a little bit different um, based on, on the, 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 the organ involved with graft versus host disease. But the overall response rate was 75%, which is certainly on par with what we saw with ibrutinib uh, in a similar patient population, numerically a little bit higher. Um, these folks were pretty severe uh, with their graft versus hosties, it looks like to me. Uh, about half had four or more organs involved. One third had already uh, tried abrutinib, another third had tried uh, ruxolitinib. Uh, on average, the median prednisone dose equivalent was 0.2 mg per kg, which would be like 20 milligrams for someone who weighs 100 kilograms. Um, it's a little challenging to figure out what the side effects you would expect from this drug. A lot of the toxicities, for example, transaminitis, very well could be. Uh, remnant of chronic graft versus host disease. Uh, there did appear to be some nausea. Um, the only uh, warning in the PI is for embryo-fetal toxicity, which is important since this is approved for, uh, for, for pediatric patients and younger patients of childbearing potential, uh, and there are dose adjustments for transaminitis. All right, so that's uh, Bellamosudil. I think the big thing, to, kind of the key takeaway is these folks, uh, they're on steroids, probably high-dose steroids, in, which means they're probably going to be on a PPI, which means you do need uh, a higher starting dose of Bellamosudil in those patients, according to the prescribing information. And then the last update in graft versus host disease is the REACH-3 study, which was published uh, last month in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is uh, ruxolitinib versus physician's choice, essentially, in treating uh, chronic graft versus host disease. So let's look at this patient population. It's a little little funky here. So they included, so these were patients that had steroid refractory chronic graft versus host disease, all right? So they had their allogeneic stem cell transplant. The immune system is trying to fight off, you know, keep the leukemia at bay or lymphoma at bay. Uh, and then they're on immunosuppressants to prevent graft versus host disease, but they're having some sort of graft versus host disease after day plus 100 of transplant uh, or, or something similar to that. Um, 
They excluded people who had had two or more prior lines of treatment on top of a corticosteroid for chronic graft versus OC. So an earlier line of treatment than the belimosidol um, approval that we just talked about. Um, now, they did allow people on the study who had already received a JAK inhibitor, and that's what ruxolitinib is. It's a JAK inhibitor. Um, and only though, so you, these patients could have had a JAK inhibitor and got on this study only if they had a complete response or partial response to ruxolitinib, but they've been off it for eight weeks. So I just, if you had chronic graft-versus-host disease, you took ruxolitinib, it went away, and it stayed away for at least eight weeks, and it came back, you could be enrolled in this study and had a 50-50 chance of not getting ruxolitinib. And in fact, there were 8.4% of patients randomized to the control arm where the physician decided to withdraw the patient from the study. And conceivably, it would be people who, you know, I'm going to put you on ruxolitinib no matter what because you did well with it before. It's been a couple months. That's what I want to try again. But if you can do it on study, we'll do it. If you're not randomized to ruxolitinib, we'll take you off the study. Now, here's what the physician's choice could have been. Uh, extracorporeal photophoresis, which is something maybe I heard about during residency. That was the most common, 35%. Uh, so extracorporeal photophoresis is when you take somebody with chronic graft-versus-host disease, or, or maybe even cutaneous lymphomas or scleroderma. It's been studied. Uh, you ferese their blood. You take their blood out. Uh, you expose the blood to 8-methoxysorlin, or 8-MOP, which is then activated in the presence of ultraviolet radiation and, and decreases lymphocyte activity. Then the blood and those lymphocytes are returned to patient. And this seems to be um, tried quite a bit in pediatric graft-versus-host disease uh, and seems maybe most effective or especially effective for uh, cutaneous GVHD or GVHD that's affecting the skin. Uh, another 22% uh, were on low-dose methotrexate, 17% were on abrutinib. Those were the most three common physicians' choice. Other options could have been mycophilic mofetil, an mTOR inhibitor like sirolimus, infliximab, rituximab, and matinib, and my favorite statin, pentostatin. Uh, and ruxolitinib was better compared to physician's choice. Based, based on response rate, duration of response was better. Uh, a good number of patients on the control arm did uh, cross over to receive ruxolitinib, uh, which I think is notable. Um, and I, again, I'm not terribly qualified to give you uh, hard-hitting analysis on these GVHG drugs since I don't practice in transplant, but I do think it's worth pointing out uh, because of the support of care concerns. And we see these patients in our clinic uh, after they come back from their, their their tertiary center where they get the transplant. So we are involved sometimes in managing the side effects of these drugs and at least knowing why they're on them uh, is is worth, I think, uh, discussing on the podcast. All right, so that's, that's, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at PharmDeedum. Follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.